You are tuned into the Dr. Tina Show with Dr. Tina Moore. For more, visit drtina.com. On this episode of the Dr. Tina Show, we're talking about chronic disease in America. I know this isn't a great, happy topic to get into, but it needs to be gotten into. I don't know about you, but the situation looked bleak to me long before COVID, long before the pandemic, and long before we started a mass vaccination campaign with a mRNA gene therapy that was experimental. So we're going to dive into it. One of my great knowledge bombs that came out of my training was due to Dr. Weston Price and Dr. Francis Pottinger. I listened and learned whenever anybody in any of my circle, whether it was my training or it was weekend workshops or it was conferences, would talk about Price or Pottinger. I am a Weston Price uh, devotee. I loved his book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, when I was in medical school. And I loved Dr. Francis Pottinger's book as well. I was recently, actually this past weekend, a honored guest at the Children's Health Defense event in Ashland, Oregon. And I got to share a stage with some epic practitioners and doctors and PhDs and researchers, one of them being Dr. Jennifer Margulis and the other being the great Naomi Wolf. I mentioned from the stage, Dr. Pottinger, and I got so many great questions from the audience after, and I thought, you know, I should probably talk about this on the podcast. So here we go. If you guys don't know who Dr. Pottinger was or what his work was, I'll give you the quick rundown. In the 1930s, he was actually a doctor of human medicine. I thought he was a veterinarian until just recently when I looked this up. So bad on me for saying that. All these years I've been telling people he was a veterinarian. He's actually a doctor of human medicine and he conducted experiments on cats in the 1930s. So from 1932 to 1942, he conducted multi-generational nutritional studies on cats. And basically what he did was he took cats who should be eating a raw diet, right? They're felines. <laughs> they should be eating not cooked meat. And he noticed that when he fed them cooked meat or pasteurized milk, problems arose. In fact, they actually never got past the third generation as they became sterile when they were eating cooked meat and pastured milk. So pasteurized, I'm sorry meaning they lost their fertility and the ability to reproduce. It is important to note that in all of these cat experiments, I will just preface with this, they, he removed their adrenal glands. The reason being is he was actually trying to do studies for human use by taking out the adrenal glands of these cats. So if you know anything about adrenal health, you'll know that's probably a terrible thing to be doing to an animal and all sorts of problems probably arose from that. So we don't have a great control group here, but I just want to share some of what this information that was gleaned from this. So basically what he found out that was that if you fed the cats a diet of raw meat and raw milk and cod liver oil, versus a different group that he fed a diet of cooked meat and actually raw milk in this group and cod liver oil. By the end of the first generation, the cooked meat cats started to develop degenerative diseases and get very sedentary. By the end of the second generation, they had developed more degenerative diseases, changes in their skeletal structure. So their bones started to change. The calcium content of their bones started to change and decrease significantly. 
At 16 weeks of age, the second generation raw food kittens weighed about 2,000 grams on average, while the second generation cooked meat animals were smaller at 16 hundred grams. So we're already starting to see problems there. By the end of the third generation of cats, the cooked meat subjects had developed degenerative diseases very early in life, and some were born blind and weak with a much shorter lifespan. Many of this generation couldn't reproduce, as I mentioned. So by the third generation, they'd lost their ability to reproduce. Interestingly, most of the adults of this generation were not interested in sex, And those that attempted to mate could only produce stillborn litters. Kittens of the third generation did not survive past six months. The cats died out totally by the fourth generation. Skin diseases, allergies, uh, liver issues, thyroid issues, all kinds of issues arose in these generations as they went down the line, but particularly by this third generation, they were starting to see big problems fur loss. So their fur was falling out. Uh, it has it had lost its sheen. The shedding had become increased. The males had become docile and the females had become more aggressive. Does any of this sound like what's happening right now to humans? Because I've been noticing this myself and I'm not pointing a finger at anybody, but we are definitely on a downward trajectory if you look at the overall health of humans. We have a problem brewing. And I've been saying it for years, long before the pandemic, that my generation, I would say, was Pottinger's third generation of cats. If you look at when processed foods really came on the scene in, you know, the boomer, our boomers, the boomer generation, that was, you know, in the 1950s, processed foods and that way of living became somewhat of a convenience issue, right? That's that's when this all started. And so really World War II, we started to see issues. I'm not saying we should be eating raw food <laughs> or raw meat. That's for felines. But I'm talking about the adulteration of the food supply, which in the 30s and 40s was already starting to happen, definitely in the 50s, and really got pronounced in the 90s. So I'm going to say that my generation was roughly the third generation of Pottinger's cats, and we're seeing sky-high rates of infertility in the next generation. My daughter's 22, so that generation. Lots of problems there, guys, and maybe you haven't noticed in your young folks, but there's a lot of problems brewing. We want to blame guns. We want to blame SSRIs. We want to blame a lot of things. I'd like to suggest that perhaps epigenetics plays a role in that, you know, the old adage is, genetics loads the gun and lifestyle pulls the trigger. It really comes down to epigenetics as well, which are like little flags on your genetic code. So it's not, you know, if your parents had diabetes or high blood pressure, that's not your fate. But epigenetically, there may be some play here. So I'll get into that more in a, in a moment. I want to keep telling you about these cats. Basically, here's the deal. Um, It took about nine generations. Once they reversed these cats' diets, let me talk to you about that. They called it regeneration. When cats of the first and second generation cooked meat-fed groups were returned to a raw meat diet, they are classified as regenerating animals of the first and second orders, all right? So their progeny are then maintained at an optimal diet, meaning the raw diet, to measure the time needed to rebuild their health to that of normal cats. It required approximately four generations for either order to regenerate to a state of normal health. 
However, because of the lack of reproductive efficacy, very few deficient animals regained normal health. So very few even could come back from it, noted before deficiency was imposed in, the, in this line of the, of the cats. So some of them didn't come back, even if they, with all best measures. Improvement in resistance to disease is noted in the second generation regenerating cat, but allergic manifestations persisted into the third generation. In the third generation, skeletal and soft tissue changes are still noticeable, but to a lesser degree. And by the fourth, most of the severe deficiency signs and symptoms disappear, but seldom completely. One of the experiment's most startling discoveries was that once a female cat is subjected to a deficient diet for a period of 12 to 18 months, her reproductive efficacy is so reduced that she never again was able to give birth to normal kittens. So she was able to reproduce, but not to normal kittens. Even after three or four years of eating an optimum diet, her kittens still showed signs of deficiency in skeletal and dental development. When her kittens were maintained on an optimum diet, a gradual reversal and regeneration started to take place. So I can speculate all I want on what I think about the impacts of what modern day food um, has done to humans. But I'm telling you, if you look, even if you, we can get into some studies too here in a moment, looking at maternal metabolic health, and what that does to offspring. So simply the mother being of poor metabolic health has ramifications on her offspring that, that those offspring will carry throughout their life. We are looking at Pottinger's cats in the human species is what my hypothesis is and what I am presenting to you today. This is the tough conversation that nobody wants to have. If you listen to my episode where Mark Groves was my guest, you heard us talk about how we both think humans are going extinct. And I think that um, what we're currently, how we're currently functioning as a species is just absolutely unsustainable. There's no way that the amount of metabolic dysfunction that's prevalent in our society is sustainable. Not, you know, COVID aside and vaccines aside, which the vaccines, we've got data. Uh, problems with sperm function and sperm count problems with fertility, spike proteins in the ovaries. I'm not making this up. This is all data that's out there that you can go seek out. I'll try to dig some of it up to throw in the show notes, but this isn't anything you can't find readily. And I'll, I'll say this, if this is news to you, you know, this this bad news, people aren't paying attention, right? Like I, I, I talk to people frequently who look at me like I'm wearing a tinfoil hat and I'm like, clearly you haven't been paying attention and I don't have the time to explain all of this to you. Like those of you who've been following me this whole time or following many other great folks who've been sounding the alarm know what's going on. But if this is all new news, then we have a real problem. You simply just need to go to any mall or beach or public get, Costco, go anywhere and just look at humans. We are a hot mess of health. The bulk of humans at this point are not just overweight, but obese. Um, many are morbidly obese. This isn't a judgment. This is fact that this is not sustainable. And it's now it's becoming normalized, right? So now we're turning it into the health at every size movement, which is a hypothesis and one that is not founded on any good data. Obesity in and of itself, adipocytes drive inflammation and drive chronic degenerative disease, 
Most diseases that you see right now that are killing the bulk of Americans are preventable lifestyle diseases, meaning they are 100% contingent on one's lifestyle and they are 100% reversible uh, contingent on one's lifestyle. Now, reversible meaning, are they going to go back to baseline? No. Damage has been done, right? That much oxidative damage for how long? If it's been decades, uh, that kind of oxidative damage brewing in the body is going to have serious health implications, regardless of how we want to look at it. And then we've, you know, conversely, let's look at the folks who are just really thin and have no muscle mass whatsoever. Those are what we called TOFI, thin on the outside, fat on the inside, or the, the metabolically unsound who are thin, those folks actually have a higher increased mortality, meaning higher risk of death from everything, pretty much. So being underweight and undermuscled, being overweight and undermuscled, having a busted metabolism either way you look at it is really the beginning of the end and the kiss of death. And this is why I so fervently pound this drum. I have been talking about this since I can't even remember. I remember being in school once. I'll tell you a story. I was in school and I was in the community clinic and I had um, a Spanish-speaking Hispanic woman and her daughter in my... I was at a community clinic, so we had basically a drapes, you know, dividing the rooms. And I had her in my cubicle with me and I was trying to explain to her her diabetes. And I was explaining insulin resistance. And because there was a language barrier, my Spanish is not good. I didn't have a translator, but she spoke some English and her daughter spoke spoke decent English. Her daughter was probably 10 or 12. And I drew it all out. Her daughter spoke great English. You know, She was born and raised here in the US. And so she was able to translate it all for me. And I drew it all out for her, literally like drew, drew pictures of what insulin resistance was. And I had to tell her to stop eating corn, which is traditionally a large part of her diet. And because it's not processed the same anymore, it's highly genetically modified. It's not cooked in healthful lard. It's cooked in seed oils, you know, on and on. And so I had this conversation and I remember her understanding it very clearly and she was ready to take action, which she did. There was no struggle there. In fact, I'll say this, I get a lot of pushback from liberal white women telling me I'm racist pretty frequently, honestly. I don't know what their white saviorism is all about, but I've worked in a lot of community clinics with the underserved. I've taken medical brigades deep into the jungle of Mexico. I have treated all different types of backgrounds, Lots of spent a lot of time working with homeless youth, uh, drug-addicted homeless youth, all different ethnic backgrounds. The folks who want to take their health into their hands and not die are the people who listen. It doesn't matter how what their financial situation is. It doesn't matter what their ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what, you know, it's, none of that matters. What matters is people who know better do better if they want to. And I've had better compliance coming out of the community clinics out of folks who had no money than I, way better than I have out of rich white folks in the fancy suburbs where I've worked where they had all the money in the world to spend, but they just wanted to justify their sugar addiction all day. So I'll leave it at that. I'm, I'm sorry if that offends anyone, but I, I can't, man, I have listened to rich white women talk themselves in circles around their diabetes and try to justify their sugar addiction and their baking habits and their, oh, I got to bake for my grandchildren and blah, blah, blah. When I've had, you know, I remember one woman I was treating a, a black woman who had pretty severe rheumatoid arthritis that was 
rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune condition, has a lot to do with what's going on in your gut and particularly what organisms are living in there and your dietary habits. It's very much mitigated successfully with proper lifestyle. And sometimes people definitely need pharmaceutical intervention so that their joints don't erode and dissolve. But in this woman's case, she didn't have the financial means to get some of these medications. And we were in a community clinic where we only had a limited supply of supplements. And I had to put her on a water fast, which is not something I take lightly. I don't throw most people on a water fast unless I'm really monitoring them. And I had her go on a three-day water fast and do a vegetable broth uh, cause she was a vegetarian. I would have liked to move her to more of a carnivore diet, but that was not, that was, she wasn't going to do that because she had some ligamentous instability in her upper spine, which is, was due to the rheumatoid arthritis and nobody would have caught it except I happened to be in chiropractic college and we were studying it that week. I was in the naturopathic clinic, but none of the naturopaths would have caught that cause they don't learn about it. But I did in chiropractic college and I immediately got her in for an x-ray and sure enough, we had a problem on our hands. Um, and she had great success by using the tools that she had available to her. And she also happened to love to cook from scratch. She loved to grow herbs on in her garden. And so she was able to grow some of her medicine. And she we worked together to get her into a state of somewhat of remission until we could get her into the proper uh, network's if she were wanting to seek out some of the pharmaceutical interventions that we could find for her. I mean, my point of all this is, is nobody gets better unless they want to. That's been my experience. That's my personal experience. People can judge me by this all day, but, and I apologize for my passionate rant, (laughs) if you will, but that's what this podcast is all about. I'm trying to bring you guys truth. I've had a pretty diverse medical experience, not the most diverse. I'm sure there's people with much more diversity than I, um, but I've helped a lot of people in a lot of situations and a lot of behind the scenes stuff that, you know, I get trashed on by my colleagues often because they're like, oh, she didn't take health insurance. What would she know about treating the underserved? And I actually know quite a bit. So those who want to maintain their health, maintain their health. And those who don't, don't. It often has little to do with resources. Now, I will not dismiss resources because I understand that that fully plays into this. I'm going to go back to big food. Big food changed abruptly in the 90s. It was already going downhill since the 50s. But big food is a conglomerate that I very much believe is in bed with big pharma. Big food makes you sick. Big pharma keeps you on their pills. It's a very good relationship the two of them have. Big food keeps you addicted. Big pharma keeps you as a customer. Yes, I do believe that big food has been disproportionately targeting African-Americans and people of color in our country. I do believe that. I do believe, now I don't think they do it because they think that this group is less intelligent because they absolutely are not. That's not what I found at all in working with different communities. Uh, I think what they are banking on is there are different cultures who are more apt to do what the doctor tells them. And they might be more apt to become prey to commercials and the way that commercials are targeted. Um, Culturally, we see differences in how people respond to pain and how people, literally it's like in their culture. Um, I had a patient once who was a Middle Eastern man and he was in the most horrific low back pain and he wasn't showing a sign of it at all. And I really had to get it out of him how much pain he was in because culturally you you don't express that, right? I live in a farming community now where I've got to really pull it out of my husband if he is in pain or discomfort because you don't complain. 
So I'm just saying culturally, it doesn't even have to do with ethnicity or race. Like culturally, we, um, everybody's different, right? And so as a good physician, you've got to work with who you're, who's in front of you, who, who, you know, what, what's their story? How did they get here? And, and how can you help them right now? Um, yes, resources help, but not always. I'm telling you, I've seen a lot of rich people piss away their health with all the resources in the world. And to the point of it being so frustrating, I worked in one of the richest suburbs in Portland for a long time and I didn't like it there. <laughs> I did. I never liked being in that community because I watched a lot of wealthy people make excuses for their shitty health habits. They did, they did not enjoy better health than when I worked in some of the lower income portions of Portland. Not necessarily. Again, it comes down to people who really want to make change. And I'm telling you right now, the way that viruses have been altered because of lockdowns and the vaccine campaign and what we're doing to the immune system, I'm actually writing a substack right now on data that we have showing that people's immune systems are being impacted by this vaccination campaign, which I have been warning about and hypothesizing about from the beginning. I've got some good data on it. New England Journal of Medicine came out Friday, last Friday, that the unvaccinated are less contagious than the vaccinated. Again, another hypothesis I've been sharing. So, you know, it's happening. It makes sense. I mean, when you think about it logistically and I'm not so much worried about COVID. I mean, I am actually worried about COVID for the vaccinated. You can read more about that in my Substack, but I'm not so much worried about the unvaccinated when it comes to COVID. What I'm worried about is what has happened to RSV, what has happened to the influenza virus, what are those going to look like this fall and winter? And so I, if you've been sitting around saying, oh, I got to get my sugar habit under control, or I've got to stop drinking, or I've really got to get my autoimmune disease in check, like you don't have any more fucking time to dink around. And I hope you hear me on this. If you unsubscribe right now and decide you hate me, so be it. If it saves your life, like there is no more time to be fucking around with your health. If you want to make it through what's coming, I think the toughest part of this story is ahead of us. I think what we're looking at with governments and with future lockdowns, and they just called the state of emergency on monkeypox and Biden is, you know, as of today, I don't even know what's happened, but yesterday Biden had considered calling it a, you know, a U.S., emergency, which just gives tyrannical leaders the ability to implement more mandates and more lockdowns and more emergency measures, right? Like here we go again. And it's crazy making to me because at the end of the day, I am still seeing huge lines around McDonald's and I'm still, I can, I go out and I don't go out in public much. You guys, I live on a farm and I try to stay away from, I've always been this way. I'm a hermit, but when I go out, I am in shock at the utter state of health in this country. I mean, it's appalling to me. Children, teenagers, adults, older folks, everybody is walking around with severe metabolic dysfunction. You can see it because they've all got quite a large midsection. You know, people are going from human shaped to potato shaped. And I mean no disrespect for by this because that's literally what's happening. I I can't sit back and watch it happen and not say anything. Like we have a problem and that in my opinion, is what's driving the continuation of these viruses being virulent and these viruses causing problems. We would have, you know, if if COVID had hit in the 1950s, this would have been over and done quickly 
first of all, they probably would have let it run its course. But most importantly, we would have had way less people that were susceptible to poor outcomes, way less humans. Humans were too sickly in 2020 to handle COVID. COVID, I don't think, was actually the worst thing in the world. I think we had a very sick human population that wasn't able to handle it. So a recent study came out, you know, you've heard me talk about the 12% of Americans that are metabolically healthy and all the rest are not. Well, a recent study came out showing that um, that actually ended its, it the, the study ended looking past 2018. So 2018 was the cutoff and it showed that only 6% of US adults are metabolically healthy. That's a problem. And then let me tell you some of this data on mothers. I want to share this study. In 2010, in the American Journal of Physiology, a study called Maternal Obesity and Fetal Metabolic Programming, a fertile epigenetic soil, showed that in addition to insulin resistance, children born of metabolically unsound mothers, those who were overweight, obese, and or diabetic, even if the diabetics were of normal weight, were not overweight. Uh, that these offspring had insulin resistance, more propensity towards insulin resistance, higher propensity towards lipid deposition in their muscles and their liver. They had macrophages in their system that were leaning more towards an M1 phenotype, meaning their immune system was leaning more towards a more pro-inflammatory state. They had higher levels of inflammation. They had higher levels of insulin-resistant fat tissue themselves. And that fat couldn't break down as easily in the liver and muscle. This is a this is a adult situation. This is what adult type two diabetics look like. Like phenotypically, this is what an adult type two diabetic would look like. So we're seeing these changes in infants and children of mothers who are metabolically unsound and who are, even if they are of normal weight, who are metabolically unsound. And then we have another study that came out in Frontiers of Immunology talking about infants born to obese, overweight, and diabetic mothers. And these infants also had increased fat mass. They looked at the metabolites in the breast milk and what it was potentially leading to with the offspring. I want to counter and say perhaps it was the babies being born to metabolically unsound mothers, but also their breast milk was different. Uh, this study concluded that maternal obesity is a significant risk factor for childhood obesity. And some of the changes that happened in the metabolome or the metabolites of the breast milk were as follows. Uh, they had excessive fetal growth. These mothers, or I'm sorry, these infants did. These, again, these infants and children had an increased obesity risk, increased risk of development of type 2 diabetes, premature onset of cardiovascular disease, higher risk of um, all kinds of issues, really, and different mortalities. They also potentially had higher risk of neuropsychiatric and behavioral disorders like ADHD, conduct issues and autism. They had a reduction in the prefrontal cortex thickness and associated executive function. This may be due to some of the metabolites, but they also found interestingly that a higher ratio of omega-6 to omega-3s in the breast milk. That's not just the only reason I'm sure, but my point is, is does this sound familiar? Like, are we seeing... You know, that was a 2020 study. The other study I shared was a 2010 study. There's lots of studies like this out there. You can look them up. But, and I'm not trying to be the harbinger of bad news always, but do, we, do you see a theme? Like we are Pottinger's cats. We are headed 
in the wrong direction and now it's becoming generational. So reversing this, if it's anything like Pottinger's cats, is going to be quite challenging. I don't know if we have enough time to do it because nobody's waking up. Nobody, like the mass group of people are not realizing this is a problem and, you know, Pepsi-Cola and Nabisco and Kraft and all these companies are continuing to win the war. And we are not even like, I can't, I can't post about this stuff without being met with massive vitriol on my Instagram. It's wild to me. And I've talked to some of my colleagues who share the very same type of information and very much the same delivery style. And they have much smaller followings and they don't take the heat like I do. I think it's because I have a bigger audience, but it's crazy to me the amount of pushback I get from people who just want to argue for their limitations. And I will say this to them with all my heart and soul, I am here trying to help, but arguing for your limitations isn't going to reverse your chronic metabolic disease, which is going to, going to ultimately lead you down a terrible and miserable pathway, whether it be heart disease, blindness, kidney issues, leading to dialysis or and or chronic osteoarthritis, which is a metabolic disease. You can go back and listen to my episode with Sean Baker on that. All of these don't lead down a good, it's not going to get better. Yelling at me for your limitations isn't going to get better, right? And I know it's hard because most of you listening are in agreement with what I am saying and I'm in an echo chamber here, but I know, and I know you're trying to talk to your loved ones. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if there's any way to compel anyone to change their behaviors. I, I, you might be able to scare the shit out of them. That might work. Fear is a great motivator. I hate to say that, but that seems to be the only thing that gets people to take action most of the time is me having to put a little bit of fear into them, a little bit of come to Jesus, fear of God. Suddenly people are like, oh my gosh, I got to take action. But I'm telling you, we don't have a lot of time on this. So if you're sitting on the fence and you're like, oh, I've been waffling, I've been listening to Dr. Tina and I believe her, but yeah, it's hard. Like I'm telling you, kicking sugar is the easiest part of this. The rest of it has got to get into place and you all know how to do it. I've, I've shared with you extensively how to do it on this podcast. So just go back and listen to some previous episodes. I do want to share with you a really interesting uh, article I came across, which has just some sobering statistics. This is from AmericanActionForum.org. And it was from 2020, September 2020. So this was, you know, the pandemic was up and rolling. And we know from the data that rates of obesity and type 2 diabetes have skyrocketed in both children and adults. It's more than doubled in children uh, since the advent of lockdown. So I can only imagine that these chronic disease stats in a few years when they compile them again will be far more horrific. But this is what we got right now. So (laughs) I'm going to give you some statistics. When including indirect costs associated with lost economic productivity, the total cost of chronic disease in the United States reaches $3.7 trillion each year. Trillion, you guys. That's approximately 20% of the country's gross domestic product. This is why I say this is not sustainable. Those with chronic disease and their families face both direct and indirect costs. Direct costs are primarily stemming from longer and more frequent hospital visits and greater prescription drug use, while indirect costs arise from lost education and job opportunities. That's a big one, right? We, I mean, I, I don't even want to go too far into that, but when you're looking at children who are dealing with chronic illness, 
lifestyle-induced chronic illness, generational chronic illness, epigenetic and genetic chronic illness, from what I just shared, that the information I just shared, these kids are going to have a really tough time in the job market. And that's, that's tragic, right? A disease is considered chronic when it persists for at least a year or more and requires ongoing medical attention. Approximately 47% of the U.S. population, that would be over 150 million Americans, suffered from at least one chronic disease as of 2014. You can only imagine where it's at now. Almost 30 million Americans are living with five or more chronic diseases. The risk and prevalence of chronic disease grows as we age, of course, approximately, but however, approximately 27% of children in the United States suffer from a chronic condition. 27% of children, you guys, suffer from a chronic condition, while about 6% of children have more than one chronic condition. In contrast, around 60% of adults suffer from at least one one chronic condition, while 42% suffer from multiple. Among those 60 or older, at least 80% have one chronic illness and 50% have two. And you might say, oh, but Dr. Tina, old people get chronic disease. Contraire, older people who are aging well do not get chronic disease. Older folks who take care of themselves and walk into older age with muscle mass and good dietary habits and good lifestyle habits who move a lot. And these do not have to be wealthy people, folks. I've treated lots and I've had the honor of treating many, many very healthy 70, 80, 90 year olds in my practice over time because they were my mentor's patients. I took over his practice of 30 some years. So I inherited these wonderful old folks who were quite vital and they came from all different socioeconomic backgrounds. Many of them were on a fixed income, but they knew better. They knew they needed to eat real food. They knew they needed to take some targeted supplements to keep their mineral status up. And they knew they needed to get enough protein and they knew they needed more. Most importantly, all of them said the same thing, just keep moving. They knew the minute that they stopped moving, it was the kiss of death. So the minute they had any kind of musculoskeletal complaint, they were in my office getting treated because they didn't want that to slow them down. They knew if they were out for more than a few days, their cognition was going to start going, their ability to keep moving was going to start going. So moving your buns around, that's it, right? So these ailments account for 70% of all deaths in America, you guys. Chronic illnesses and diseases account for 70% of all deaths in America, killing more than 1.7 million people each year. So COVID's got nothing on that. I'm sorry. This is insane. These numbers are insane to me. And there's much more to this article. I'll post it in the show notes so you can look at it. There's graphs, there's data, there's all kinds of uh, references. So you can go crazy on it. But the more I read it, the more depressed I got. So I'm just going to, that was the first paragraph. (laughs) I'm going to leave you with that. So remember, Pottinger's cats, remember what maternal health does to the offspring. And remember the chronic disease stats I just shared with you. This is what we're looking at. How can you do something about it? That's a tough one. I think all we can do is take care of ourselves, right? We can take care of ourselves. We can take care of our kids as much as our kids will let us, right? I know as they get older, sometimes they rebel. Mine did. Mine rebelled against health. That was her big rebellion was hiding soda (laughs) in the closet, not alcohol, soda. But the best we can do is model our own good health. I have read lots and lots about behaviorism and, oh gosh, 
just the myriad of ways to get patients to be compliant. And I'll tell you at the end of the day, nobody does a damn thing unless they want to. And that's it. So I've also, as you know, I'm a marketing, I teach doctors how to market. So I would say I'm a marketing and business coach. And a lot of that is psychology. A lot of that is uh, influence. A lot of that's trying to get the right words to get people to comply, right? It's not a manipulation. It's, it's, it's exactly what I did in clinical practice, which was trying to be, to make a convincing story for someone, a real story based on facts. But how do you convince people to do anything? You don't. People come around when their pain becomes severe enough. And oftentimes that works and other times it doesn't. Sometimes they're so far gone that turning the ship around is going to be a real challenge. I've seen that clinically as well. And it's really heartbreaking when people finally decide like, yes, I'm going to make some massive changes. And it's, you know, it's hard. It becomes really challenging and it, it doesn't work as easily. So the younger you are, the better, but don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, even if you're older, get your ass in gear and do it now. Your family is depending on you. Your loved ones are depending on you. And if anything, you want to be able to survive the zombie apocalypse that we are currently in. We are in book three of the Hunger Games, you guys. Shit is getting real. I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer. I'm just a realist. And I want to let you know what we're dealing with. We are dealing with a chronically ill country, which is not sustainable. All we got to do is outlast the tyranny stay healthy and not let any of these buggers coming down the chute this fall and winter get us too badly. Resilience is the key. So get the sauna if you can. I've got links to my sauna in the show notes, the saunas that I love. Make sure you're exercising regularly. Make sure you're building muscle as part of that exercise. Make sure that you are managing and mitigating your stress levels. That might be as simple as changing your job or getting rid of somebody in your life that you absolutely cannot stand. A lot of people are living with people they can't stand or they're dealing with quote unquote friends that are causing them extreme amount of stress. I'm telling you, one of the simplest and most effective things I've done for my health is just cutting people out of my life when they are chronically elevating my cortisol. You quickly realize they were causing you more grief than they were causing you uh, help, right? But we just keep people around because we're being too nice. This is not the time to be too nice anymore. We're well past that. Our country is in danger from more than just our ill health effects. So my part on this and my mission in this world is trying to keep humans surviving the zombie apocalypse. And I want to help you guys too. So check out the rest of my podcast episodes here. If you're new to me, if you're not catch up on them, I try to give you all the information with all the great guests and interviews that I can. And then I throw these solo episodes in. So I will leave you with that. I will bid you adieu. If you have any questions for the podcast, please don't hesitate to email us at podcast at drtina.com. Be sure to check out my store at store.drtina.com. I've got an awesome selection of supplements in there that are vetted and created by me that will help you build your resilience as well. And I've got a variety of information on my website at drtina.com. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to the Dr. Tina Show. Please be sure to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Tina, that's D-R-T-Y-N-A and Dr. Tina 2.0, as well as visit my website at drtina.com. This is a Resonant Media production produced by Drake Peterson and mixed by Chris McCone. The theme song is by John the Guilt. As always, you can email the show at podcast at drtina.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. See you next week. 
This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practices of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is intended not to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.